Genesis 2, verse 15, 16. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Genesis 3, verse 1 to 7. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then turning to Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night, and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. Thank you, Mike, very much. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. My name is Pete Snow. I'm one of the assistant ministers here. I've come fresh from the church getaway, and uh, it's good to be with you as we study this passage in Genesis, part of our uh, Origins of Life series. So I think it's going to be a good time just for the next few moments. Let's pray together as we begin. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us here together. Uh, Thank you for your word from which we can learn. And I pray that wherever we are this morning, whatever state we're in, however familiar with the Bible, you would have a blessing for each of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's something wrong with the world. What's the world coming to? What is up with the universe? Have you said that recently? Has someone that you know maybe said that in your hearing? I think perhaps uh, those sorts of statements are uh, common in everyday life. Perhaps particularly so recently. I was struck that uh, when we had the the church carol services here just before Christmas in 2016, uh, what we normally try and do in a carol service is lots lots of guests come in, they love singing the carols, and we try and uh, point out maybe some some of the ways in which the world is not meeting their expectations and lead people to Christ who does. I was struck in 2016, it was easier than usual to do that, you know, just because politically 2016 was fraught. Uh, Economically, we're not having such a great time in the last few years. 
socially, perhaps people are slightly more aware of the, the problems in society, the, the fractures. We talk about broken Britain. And I think that it, this is not just a top-level thing. It's not just that sometimes the elections don't go the way we might be hoping. It's, it's more like when we, actually we look within the four walls of our own home, we realize that our home life can be somewhat intractable. There's not much progress there either. But what is wrong with the world? And I wonder if London is more than usually aware of that at the moment. I want to say to you as we come to Genesis 3 that this is so important. This chapter is so important to Christianity. And furthermore, I think it's not just important to Christianity, it's actually important to life. I want to say to you that if you're a complete skeptic here this morning, this chapter explains a lot of what you see in the world. And I'll try and persuade you of that as we go along, as we look at what it actually says here. It's so important for your view of the world. The fall, as people sometimes call it, Genesis chapter 3, that when humanity fall from grace and what they could have been, is not just a fairy story, it's a historical event, as we were seeing in Genesis 2 last week. But more than that, it's a view of the world. The fall is a view of the world. It's like, like glasses through which I look at the world and I think, ah, okay, that explains why that is the way it is. That explains why that is the way it is. It explains why I see so much beauty in the world and also so much brutality. Without the fall, without these glasses on, uh, everything in the world is chance, I take it. I mean, that's the most popular view, isn't it? The new atheists would say, well, it's just chance. We happen to be on the rock that is orbiting the star in the universe where things can be incredibly beautiful, but also nature is red in tooth and claw. And there's beauty, but there's brutality. What are the chances? On the other hand, with a Christian view of the fall, this scriptural view, we would say, well, look, that has an explanation. It's not just, oh, look, look at the way the world is. Look at the polarity. It is you no know, beauty and dignity. They come from God, Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, as we've been seeing. But evil and sadness, they have an explanation too. We've been calling this series The Origins of Life, and I want to try and put the case to you this morning that that doesn't just refer to the good bits. It refers to the bad bits as well. The origins of the good bits of life and the ugly bits. Now, some people admittedly just cannot get beyond verse 1 of chapter 3. And I sympathize. The snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. A talking snake. Okay, this, this may present some problems. If you're familiar with the, the, the comedian Ricky Gervais, he's, he's got a, a funny uh, stand-up sketch show when he talks about this, and he gets his Bible out on the, on the podium in the stand-up show, and he reads these verses, and he's, he's an atheist, so he's poking fun and, and having a go. But he says, a, a talking snake. He says, I think, respectfully, I think maybe the snake was a mistake in God's plan. And we might think that too as we read it. What do we know about this, this character? Um, this is such a problem for people, so I want to take just a moment. What do we know about this talking snake? Well, we know, firstly, that it's Satan. It doesn't say that here, interestingly. It doesn't have the word Satan. But if we read on through the Old Testament and into the New, uh, that uh, the, the character is called Satan in the Old Testament, the devil in the New, and, and symbolically, this dark power that seems to be in the universe comes down in the Garden of Eden, takes the form of a snake, which is often associated with later, and that is the dark power represented here in Eden. So we know it's Satan. We also know he's an enemy of God, and as we read through just these seven verses at the start of Genesis 3, we'll see that. 
the enemy of God. He tries to twist God's words. Thirdly, we do know that Adam and Eve were historical people. We know that from the rest of the Bible. So Jesus talks, Matthew chapter 19, Paul talks about this in Romans 5 or 1 Timothy 2. Adam was a real person in the view of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. So I don't think we're at liberty to say, well, this seems a bit far-fetched. Maybe we'll just say they're a myth. The Bible doesn't give you the latitude to do that as you read through it. They were real historical people. In particular, we discover later in the Bible that Adam is our representative covenant head. And if that all sounds like Bible babble to you, then let me try and put it this way. Uh, If you want Jesus to be your saviour, to save you from the bad stuff in the world, then you do need an explanation for where the bad stuff came from. And Adam in the Bible is the figurative covenant head, the representative of where all the bad stuff came from in the world. Otherwise, salvation doesn't mean anything when you get to Jesus. Because that's what we do know about this character, Satan. Uh, What don't we know... Whether other humans were around when Adam and Eve were around in this chapter, I don't, just don't think the Bible says that. So some people would, would posit maybe that it would make sense to explain. You know, in chapter four, Cain somehow gets a wife from somewhere. Some people say, "Oh, well, there must have been other human beings around, and Adam and Eve were the representative ones God chose." Maybe that also it, it would explain. On the other hand, uh, Adam and Eve's existence, if we all do come from a common gene pool. Some scientists are willing to say, well, we do all seem to come from somewhere, so maybe there's an Adam and Eve. You have arguments on both sides. I really don't think the Bible says. I think the Bible is silent on that question. Another thing we don't know, the other thing, uh, whether Adam and Eve were evolved from apes and uh, you know, we, we, we came forward, Darwin, natural selection from apes, and then at some point with all this, milieu, this, this group of uh, human-like apes, God just sent right uh, you two, I'm going to call you Adam and Eve. You're going to be the first Homo sapiens. And from now on, the human race is a go. You know, I'll give you a green light. Similarly, I think Christians would dis- disagree about that. And uh, we're not at liberty to say definitely either way. But as I've been trying to argue, Adam and Eve do seem to be real historical people who are heads, representative heads for us here in Eden. If you're an atheist or an agnostic, or a a Buddhist, or anything else in between. I just want to say to you, before we dive into the detail of this, uh, you need an explanation of what's wrong with the world as well. Very easy to sit here and uh, make fun of Christians for their talking snake, Uh, how quaint. But actually, every worldview, every view of the world, needs an explanation for what's wrong with the planet. I'm going to try and show you the Christian one. Okay, we've got three sermons on Genesis chapter 3. What I want to do just for a moment or two here is try and uh, dissect an anatomy of sin in Genesis 3, 1 to 7. We'll see what we can learn together from the first sin. And uh, then in future weeks, we'll look at the results, really. So so one on the, the first sin and then another two sermons on the results of it. The first thing we learn here, first of two things this morning, which is on your service sheets, is that Adam and Eve doubted God's goodness. Verses 1 to 5. They doubted God's goodness. Let's read. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. 
You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Adam and Eve doubted God's goodness. This is the the first thing that went wrong in, in the Bible or in the whole world, we're told. And we get some detail about how it first came about. You know, we, get, we get the record of the conversation between the snake and Eve. And I think we're supposed to learn from it and appropriate the lessons for ourselves. What we see is Eve divorcing God's law from God's good and generous character. So she manages to drive a wedge from them. And as the conversation goes on, they, they get further and further apart. And have you ever noticed how if you only focus on someone's rules, this happens with God, if you only focus on their rules, you know, their, their cold, naked laws that they've given you, then that is a, a big gap between the loving person who may have given them to you. I find this in parenting often. It is not like, I don't think, uh, putting a five-year-old in a room with, a, let's say, a chocolate fountain and this lovely fountain gushing with melted chocolate and then you leave them unattended uh, and survey them, I don't know, on CCTV from afar to see how long they can... Uh, maintain you know a resistance to temptation i don't think it's like that as you read through genesis 2 and 3 and we read the context that's why i wanted the the passage from genesis 2 read rather i think about it more like uh, a holiday cottage our family we had the the privilege of going on a little half-term holiday last week and a friend of ours said well when you come and use our cottage uh, it's outside london it'll be good for you to get a couple of days break and it'll be totally free thank you We'll be there. Uh, so we went along to this lovely cottage. Um, they, they met us there at the door, sort of annexed to their house. And they said, um, look, it, 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 we want you to enjoy it for free. Please do make the most of it. Uh, you know, there were fresh sheets on the bed, towels provided for us, a, a jug of flowers on the dining table and candlesticks. It was beautiful, very generous of them. There were three rules which, which they explained to us. Um, please don't flush anything. You shouldn't flush down the toilet because it's old plumbing. So don't put baby wipes or sanitary products down there. Uh, Please don't smoke in the house. And please, if, if you're staying till Monday, would you mind putting the bins out for the binmen? Three little rules. What do you think we said to them when we left? You know, we'd, we'd had a lovely stay there. We packed up all the suitcases. We were ready to go. We, we loaded the car and then they came out of the house to say goodbye. What do you think I said to her? I can't believe you gave us some rules. I can't believe we couldn't smoke in the house. I think that would have been a misunderstanding of uh, the situation. Of course we said, thank you, this is so generous of you. Thank you for putting us in your cottage and letting us use it. We try to abide by the rules. I think when you arrive at Genesis 3, if we've been reading it, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, then we understand who we are. I am not the owner of the house. I'm a guest. I'm glad to be here. And the fact that God gives one rule... Focus on that. Sure, it seems negative. That's why I wanted to have Genesis 2.16 read. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Incidentally, we should have had the rest of uh, verse 17 read as well. That was my fault. Sorry, Mike. Uh, Now, naturally, this leads to some questions about God's character. Why, we might think, did God put the tree there at all? I put the tree in the garden. Why create the rule? Now, part of me just wants to say, we'll come back the next two weeks. We're going to look at Genesis 3 a bit more. We'll, we'll look a bit more at the origin of evil when the rest of the congregation is back. And I want to do it well when everyone's together. 
But uh, we might just observe at this stage that it's a reinforcement of who we are as, as humans. You know, we're in the image of God, we're important in the world, but we're not God. And I just wonder whether the tree is put there to uh, remind Adam and Eve and the rest of us that, look, you are in the image of God, you get to rule the whole garden, but you are not the creator. You are a guest in this house. And it might be good to have a symbolic thing to remind you of that. And then furthermore, I want you just to see with me that um, this sin unfolds. And uh, the way this develops is not a straightforward disobeying of God's one rule. It is, um, it's an unfolding, it's a process. In particular, Eve uh, questions and then twists and then denies. So just a brief look at each of these. First of all, she, she's questioning. Verse 1. The snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See how that begins? With a question. And what's more harmless than a question, right? You could legitimately uh, translate it with a slight difference. Uh, Verse 1, did God actually say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see the difference there? Did God really say, whereas uh, how unreasonable, did God actually say that? Goodness me. But he starts off by questioning. This is the first mistake in the whole Bible, the the first thing that begins to derail paradise, paradise, the first storm cloud in the sky, and it is this, that the snake casts doubt on God's word. It is rather trendy in uh, academia and in some churches at the moment to cast doubt on God's word. The Bible, this... This book, which purports to be historical, we can't really trust that. I want to say to you this morning, that was the first mistake. That was the first shadow that passed across Eden. That was the first thing that went wrong. Is it any wonder that some churches in this country are in a pickle, in trouble, theologically, if that's their starting point? Can we really trust this book? Snake begins by questioning God's word. Now, please understand me rightly. I I don't for a minute want to suggest that questions in general are wrong. I want to suggest that questioning God's word is wrong, okay? I think that one of the uh, great things about the human mind is that it can ask questions. I I think one of the great things about um, theology and learning about the Bible is that we're allowed to ask questions. And we get paradigms like Job and Habakkuk in the Bible where they're allowed to ask God questions. But questioning God's word was the first shadow. Second thing, uh, twisting God's word came next. Verses 2 and 3. Let's have a look. The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. Do you mind if we just do a little exercise together? We're we're a little bit smaller this morning, so I'm going to try and get away with this. I want you just to give me some answers, okay? Look at Genesis 2, 17. Genesis 2.17, and compare it to uh, Genesis 3, verse 3. There are three differences here between what God originally said and what Eve says here. Do you think we can get them all together? You're allowed to shout out. Yeah, thank you. So she labels it slightly differently. The middle versus the knowledge of good and evil. Second one. Uh, Yes, when you touch it, say again, Thomas. Yes, she she adds an extra rule. Do you hear that? She she says... uh, don't touch it either. Oh, God never said that. And there was someone else. 
You said the same thing. Great. So she renames the tree. Uh, she adds a rule. You mustn't touch it. And there's one more. Yeah, thank you. She, God said, uh, you will certainly die. And do you notice she just leaves that word out? C- certainly doesn't appear there anymore. Okay, thank you, thank you for bearing with me for that. Okay, three things. She renames the tree. Maybe there's nothing in that. Maybe it's just stripping the label off and making it a bit easier to disobey the rule. She does invent a rule which makes it seem a lot more harsh, doesn't it? And then she lessens the law. So she takes away the certainly. Striking that she's doing that, isn't it? She's twisting God's words. She's, she's taking away words that he said for a reason and she's putting in extra words that he didn't say. Twisting it. Do you see how it's nearly game, set and match for the snake at this point? I mean, from, from the introduction of a mere question, she's managed to, to get her in a, a couple of moves to twisting God's words and she's on the verge of denying and breaking the rule altogether. Effectively, she's beginning to think, yeah, God is pretty stingy actually, isn't he? I mean, when I think about it. Look, I don't know how big Eden was. When we, when we read chapter two, uh, it's, it's quite possible that it was several miles across. And actually, if you, if you think about the rivers and the four rivers that are supposed to be there, I think it could have been hundreds and hundreds of miles across ancient Mesopotamia. It could have been enormous. Adam and Eve were supposed to be out there, you know, tasting pomegranates and papayas and passion fruits and trying out all these things God had put in the garden and instead she's there looking up at this one tree in the middle of the garden totally focused on the one prohibition law that God had given her when there was a whole garden to enjoy you see how she's twisting God's words I had to give a talk to the students here at the church uh, last week on sex and relationships And it was striking as I thought this through and I tried to persuade them of a a Christian view of sex and relationships while they're at university and beyond, which of course is famously no sex outside marriage. Of course, if you just focus on that little rule, God seems stingy. You're an undergraduate student in London where the world is your oyster and and the one thing I tell you as the preacher is no sex outside marriage, I'm sorry. Of of course, that's, that's a stingy sounding message. What I tried to do for them was to point out the whole story. You are forgetting the context, the rest of the story, if you do that, that that sex is an incredible gift of God. I mean, he did make it. He thought it up. That our bodies and and marriage and relationships are a gift. And perhaps also, if you've ever seen an older couple, you know, an older married couple who have used sex the way that God wants them to, they've been faithful to each other, they've... uh, built a hospitable family home in which other people are free to come in and, and be healed in some way and, and serve. If you've ever seen that and they're you know, 30, 40 years into marriage, that's really beautiful. If you, if you catch a, pic, a vision of the long-term picture of what this is supposed to be rather than just staring at the prohibition and thinking, how unfair is this? I think it makes it a lot more attractive to live that way. If we're stuck in a habitual sin, you know, there's, there's some habit that's got a grip on me and I seem to be making no progress, then it's a good thing to ask, what am I missing about God here? What in his story am I forgetting in this process? What am I disbelieving about him? Let me try and give an example from my life. I think all my struggles with money and with greed and with wanting more essentially come down to a disbelief that God is good. 
You know, why, God, haven't you given me more money? Why, why don't I have more material resources in the world? Seems at heart, with me at least, to be a, a, a disbelief that actually God has given me enough. Maybe this is a good thing for me. Maybe, in fact, he is good after all, and he's the wise one. So they, they question, and then they twist, and then they deny. Verses 4 and 5. Let's read verses 4 and 5. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see how far the snakes come in, in three moves, questioning, twisting, and denying. We'll talk a bit more about death next week, uh, the, the issue of what happens when she eats the fruit and um, she doesn't seem to immediately die. But do you notice his reason here in verse 5? God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Essentially, God is holding something back from you, Eve. He is miserly. And there's something that you could have that you haven't got. Of course, it's interesting. You get to verse 7. Their eyes are opened. Aha, just as the snake promised. But the only thing they see is that, oh my gosh, we're naked. And they have to sew fig leaves together very hurriedly. Uh, They didn't seem to initially get what he promised. But more on that in future weeks. You see how all of this has been the preamble, the, 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 the building up to Eve reaching out to take the fruit. I wanted to do that deliberately because all of our doubting of God's goodness is a preamble to our reaching out to break God's laws. I don't know about you, but the more I go on in life, I, I don't want any more responsibility. You know, when, when I was younger, I thought it would be great to grow up and have power in whatever way that might manifest itself. You know, I guess career is the primary way. I found that the more, the more power and responsibility I'm given in relationships, in family life, in church, oh Lord, I don't want this anymore. <laughs> I want to run away and hide. Don't misunderstand me. I love my job. But, you know, we tend to want the power but not the responsibility. Eve here is, is building up to denying, to, uh, to denying God's goodness. She's, she's reaching out to take the fruit because she wants the power that comes from it. She doesn't want the responsibility that comes with it as well. I don't want to be God. You know, the more I think about this, the more I think that must be true. I really don't want the job of running the universe. I don't want the whole world's problems on me. I just want to be a creature, not the creator. And yet such is the the twistedness and the denying of God here that we reach out to take the power without wanting the responsibility that comes with it. Adam and Eve doubted God's goodness. It does, I think, come down to uh, whether or not I trust God. Secondly, and more briefly, Adam and Eve broke God's command. Verses 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They broke God's command. We've seen that there, there were nuances and motivations and there was a process to Eve's reaching out and doubting God's goodness, but ultimately it comes down to this. She broke God's law. And actually all sin comes down to that. That's the simplest way you can summarize sin in the Bible. It is law-breaking. 
That's why God comes along in chapter 3, verse 11, and he said, have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? You broke my law. I've broken this down for you on your service sheets into the female and the male roles that seem to be going on here. Firstly, verse 6, Eve saw and she took and she gave. You notice that there too, there's a, there's a progression. She, she saw with her eyes, she uh, took with her hands, and then she gave to others. She, she spread the sin around, if you like. I think that's true of our own sin. You know, if I'm angry with somebody else, then I, I see it with my eyes. It's very tempting, isn't it, to turn anger over in my head. Oh, I'm so angry with this person. Let me just indulge in my mind's eye what I would have said to them if I could have had that moment again. Then, of course, the next step is that she, she, she takes it. She takes it with her hand. And it's rather nice with anger in one way, isn't it, to try it out physically. I'm just going to vent some of this anger on you. I'm going to say a harsh word and we'll see where it leads. And, of course, the next step here is that it spreads to other people. It spreads to Adam. Isn't it interesting that anger does rather do that? If I get angry at you, you're probably going to get angry back at me. Anger spreads like that, just like this sin. Verse 6, the, the reasoning is all about Eve. You know, it, it was all about how nourishing it was, how, how lovely it looked when she looked at it, and how much she wanted the wisdom. In other words, I want it. I want this fruit. But of course, at, at heart, this was a simple law-breaking. And the Ten Commandments are given to us later in the Bible, so we might understand that. Sin is law-breaking. But then secondly, I put here on your sheet something in square brackets. Because I want us to see the man's role in this story. I put it in square brackets because the words he let her see and he let her take aren't actually there in the text. But you see, he does pop up at the end of verse 6 and he ate it too. Isn't that striking? So Adam was there all along, I think we're to understand. And he was past the fruit and he ate If it sounded gender imbalanced so far, then please understand this part. He was with her all along. I'm no expert in um, chivalry or romance, but I think on a normal day, if I saw the woman I love and a snake was near her, I would try and intervene. If I saw the woman I love and a snake was near her and it was talking... Something weird would be going on, but I would try and intervene. If I saw the woman I love and a snake was near her and it was talking and it was about to usher in evil into the entire world, I think I would try and intervene, or at least I would feel duty-bound to. Do you see how we have an insight here on not just the woman's sin, but the man's? There's a failure here of Adam. Sometimes theologians talk about sins of commission and omission. Eve's sin here is a sin of commission. She's commissioned to do it, but Adam's is one of omission. He fails to do something. Think about it this way. How do you wreck a house? Well, you can either take a sledgehammer to the wall and start knocking holes into it, or you can do nothing. And eventually, over time, the leaks will start to appear, and the mold will grow, and the weeds will begin to appear in the cracks, and your house will be ruined. push that a bit further. How do you wreck a marriage? Well, you can go and have uh, an adulterous affair and you can refuse to be sorry or you could do nothing. You could show no affection and no initiative and never do anything for your spouse and your marriage will be wrecked. 
How do you wreck a world? Well, you could take the apple, you could listen to the serpent, or you could do nothing. You could stand by while that all happens, and then you could eat it when it's passed to you. From here on in, in chapter 3, Adam is treated as the leader in the Genesis account. So when God shows up uh, next week, we'll see that God wants to talk to Adam. He actually uses masculine singular pronouns in the original Hebrew, so that he's definitely talking to Adam. I want to talk to you. But Adam's first mistake was abdicating. He couldn't be bothered. Of course, this isn't just a male or female principle that I'm trying to illustrate. It's possible for all of us any time we sin. You can either rush headlong into it, that's a sin of commission, or you can drift into it because other people made me do it. And that's a sin of omission. For instance, in, in work terms, this might look like uh, failing to deliver a project on time. You know, two, two employees, they're both tasked with delivering a project. One of them just doesn't show up to work doesn't turn up on deadline day, doesn't submit the thing the team leader wanted them to. Another one is just careless, abdicates responsibility, doesn't get anything done. One of them was, was, was sticking the middle finger up at their boss and the other one was just oh, drifting along. Both of them get sacked. Of course, it's even worse if, if the one that was drifting along was, the, was supposed to be leading the project, was the one tasked with the, with the actual thing and they carry the can which is what we see in Eden. So Adam gets punished for breaking God's command. Okay, we've, we've come a long way. Uh, that is Genesis 3, 1-7. That's the, the first sin. They doubted God's goodness and they broke God's command. Just, just two points of application as we close. Understand yourself and understand the world. First of all, I hope we might understand ourselves a bit better as a result of this account. If we're a human being, then then every time I break one of God's commands, whether it's a lie or indulging in uh, sinful anger or stealing something or some sexual sin or whatever it is, that is a failure to trust God. Genesis 3, 1-7 is in effect repeated in our lives every day because we doubt God's goodness and then we break God's command. That is a very humbling thing to realize about the human race and about the world. That we're on a continual treadmill where we break God's commands because we've doubted his goodness. That's why we try and weave confession into church life and I hope into our individual Christian lives. We confess our sin because we understand that we've doubted his goodness and we've broken his command. That's something you've got to understand about the world, our view of the world. Sorry, I've got the wrong heading there. That's something you've got to understand about yourself. Now let me tell you about the world. Understand the world because the fall is a view of life. It it explains why 80% of the world can believe in God, but it doesn't always feel like it does much good. It's because 80% of the world could believe that there's a creator there, but they don't necessarily trust him all the time. And as we'll see in the rest of chapter 3, it knocks the whole of creation out of kilter when it gets cursed like that. Is this therefore the most pessimistic sermon you've ever heard? I wonder if the thought has crossed your mind. Uh, This is almost the first page in the Bible, isn't it? We're right at the start of the story. I find it very encouraging that in Genesis, sorry, in Revelation 22, which was read out for us, the tree of life reappears. 
You know the other tree that got mentioned in Genesis 2? We've been concentrating on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in Revelation 22, almost the last page in the Bible, we're told that this garden city that our Lord Jesus, the second Adam, has brought into being, this new creation that he's bought our admission to, that he ushers us into, the tree of life is there. The same tree. And the leaves of it are for the healing of the nations. The leaves of that tree are sort of medicinal. You know, they're designed to, to heal the nations metaphorically. So we understand this when we look at Jesus' work in the Bible, his salvation, that the salve, the balm that I desperately needed on my wounded human being is applied to me through the tree of life and to all the millions of flawed believers who have repeated Eden over and over again in our lives. Let's pray. Almighty God, our creator, we are sorry that we've repeated Eden over and over again. We're we're sorry for the times when we have doubted your goodness and broken your commands. Please help us to understand ourselves and the world better so that we might fight sin. But how we thank you for our Lord Jesus today. Thank you that uh, he ushers us into the new creation, the new garden city, where the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Amen.